Hey Slava Connection listeners, Lara here. For this episode, we're continuing our discussion on Ukraine, but we're taking a beat to bring in some voices from our very own university, or more specifically, from the other side of campus, which is the name of our fantastic partner podcast here at UT Austin. You're going to hear some pretty familiar voices. Two of the very original hosts of Slava Connection wouldn't be where we are today without them, Matthew Orr and Lauren Nyquist. I'm a Eurasia analyst at RAIN, which stands for Risk Assessment Network and Exchange. I am a second year PhD student at Texas A&M University. As well as returning guests, Mary Newberger. I'm also the director of the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies. And Oksana Litsushina, assistant professor, writer, poet, and Ukraine native. Um, I teach Ukraine language and some Eastern European literatures, and I'm originally from Ukraine. All four of them sat down to chat about a research-focused, transformative learning project they were part of back in 2019. This included a month-long trip to Ukraine to study youth, social media, politics, and civic engagement, as well as observe what I would say was a pretty memorable event, the presidential election that Volodymyr Zelensky ended up winning that year. Together, they tell this fascinating story of the difficulties of developing intergenerational, intercultural dialogue, the power of those connections, and the invaluable reward of experiencing a new perspective in another country. I cannot recommend this episode enough. I think you guys are going to like this one. Take a listen. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. I am Katie Dawson, Associate Professor of Theater in the College of Fine Arts at the University of Texas at Austin and co-host of The Other Side of Campus. So we know UT Austin has a deep commitment to global experiences for our students and faculty. Literally, the mantra here at UT, as we all know, is, quote, what happens at UT changes the world. But I bet this group particularly knows that sometimes, and maybe more importantly, the inverse is actually true, that what happens in the world changes us. So I'd love to start at the beginning. Could you tell us a bit about how this international project got started? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try and make it as brief as possible. But basically, I think it was in the spring of 2018 that the then UT president, Gregory Fenvis, announced this new President's Award for Global Learning. I was actually in his office when it was announced with a group of faculty We were drinking wine and I was talking to Jeremy Surrey and he said, we should do a project on Ukraine. In that fall, when the program was launched, I actually talked to him a little bit about it. We decided to do something broadly related to democracy in Ukraine. And I went to one of the mixers they had between faculty and students. And I met Maya Patel, who came up to me and said, your project sounds really interesting. I want to work on that project. And so by then, I had also asked Oksana if she wanted to be involved, and we saw her as a key piece of the puzzle in this project on Ukraine. And so we held an information meeting. Lauren came to that meeting, but we had a group of undergraduate students come to that meeting. After the meeting, we came up with a committed list, smaller list of undergraduate students. We came together for a brainstorming session. And then I really handed it off to the students in terms of what is this project going to be about? And that for me was kind of the most exciting part of this. 
But I gave everyone three little cards, and this was totally an idea that I got from you, Katie, in a Provost Teaching Fellow workshop on how to teach creativity. That's my thing. Yes, yes, yes. With Mike Starberg. Yep. And so we got together. We had our three little note cards and pens to write on them. We each wrote a word or a phrase that kind of encapsulated our interest in the project. We put them all together on a big table. We started grouping them, mapping them. We came out with the notion of studying youth, social media, and politics in Ukraine. That's when Oksana said, well, actually, there's a presidential election <laughs> going on in Ukraine this spring. And we said, what? Really? Okay, well, that's going to be what we're studying. We're going to study that election through the lens of youth, social media, and their engagement through social media and other political endeavors in Ukraine. We were in a really dark conference room. Uh, that's what I remember. So Maya had contacted me because she and I had done youth political engagement as a part of a national organization in high school. We went to different high schools, but we had met through that work. And I know after she met Mary, she like sent me a text and said, hey, you're studying Russian. You're going to Russia. You like Eastern Europe. Join the group. And I went into this meeting, the conference room was dark, and they were like, we're going to do a project on Ukraine. And I probably at that moment could not tell you where Ukraine was on a map, which is embarrassing as an international relations and geography student. But I think a lot of us were in that boat. And I think a lot of Americans currently are still in that boat, which is kind of scary. But yeah, writing, I'm not surprised in the end that we ended up doing kind of youth political engagement because... That was, I mean, that's Maya's bread and butter. And that was, at the time, my bread and butter as well. And Matt Maldonado, who's another member of the group, was passionate about that. But that's how I remember it coming together. I remember Dr. Suri being at the table and kind of giving his two cents. I did not know who Zelensky was at that moment. And I just smiled and nodded until the project. But I remember starting the proposal and I don't, at that moment, it seemed like a big project. But now as a doctoral student, the project that we were tasked with is so similar to what I am doing now in writing a research proposal. And I think that was the real beauty of the vision of the President's Award for Global Learning, not only the international ability, but believing that undergraduate students, interdisciplinary group of undergraduate students, should have the ability to envision a project at that scale and that scope. We really did run with it. I mean, I think having, I don't want to sell the professors short. I think they guided us and helped us throughout the entire process. But I mean, when you've got a big vision, uh, you need somebody to rein you in who's actually done it before. But it was an awesome, like organic way for a project to start. Those like three index cards are the most intimidating thing I think I've ever done. I was filling those out because I literally was like, okay, Ukraine, I don't know anything about Ukraine. Let me write down some of my interests right now. But it was awesome. I, I mean, I think the really cool thing, too, is that we weren't funded. We didn't get the money. But we had already done so much work and we were so excited about the project that we decided to make it happen anyway. And it was on our own terms at that point. We didn't have to follow any of the parameters that they set. And we were able to just take the project, make it our own and do with it what we wanted. And in some ways, our investment was that much more intense, I think, in that we had to raise the money ourselves, <laughs> do a lot of the logistics ourselves. Like it really, truly, fully became our project at that point. But if we hadn't have done the proposal, which we put a lot of work into, we wouldn't have been sort of set up to do it and so inspired to do it. But maybe Oksana and Matt, did you have a, do you remember that differently? Or Matt, when did we bring you in? I can't remember. 
Yeah, I, I actually wanted to share my story on that. So I get my participation in the project came when, so they basically said, hey, you know, there's this project, there's this, they're going to give their like a, a, a polished version of their final pitch to us, come and just like watch it and see what you think. So we went to the Cree's office and, you know, I heard this pitch and I just remember being absolutely blown away by these undergraduates and their selection of this topic, because something that maybe we can get into at some point later in the conversation is that this topic, as we've seen by what's going on right now, was so insightful and so apropos to the future of these processes. And we were, they were, it was essentially warning about these dynamics that then, you know, came, came to a fruition in a, in a, in a certain way. And so I, rem- I remember immediately thinking like, wow, this is extremely impressive. It immediately kind of touched on a lot of my pre- previous research and interests. And so I was like, whoa, I mean, how do what, I mean, how do I support this project? And then basically I was talking to Mary afterwards just outside. And I remember Mary, you were just like, well, do you just want to come? Do you just want to join? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> of course I do. Uh, and so I, I, I eventually felt like this whole opportunity kind of fell into my lap very auspiciously. It was just a great honor to, to join this project at that stage. Oksana, do you want to tell us a little bit about your kind of entry point as also the professor and a human who's from that region? Uh, well, uh, for me, there were there were things there that didn't really have to do so much with me being a human in, in the region, but also me being a professor of humanities more than social sciences and just seeing how Mary works with the students because, you know, it's not like I've seen anything like that before, to be honest with you. And the three cards I remember very well, too. And I need to remember it better so that I could replicate it at some point in the future <laughs> with, with people. But uh, I, Mary, as a provost teaching fellow, uh, did tell us about different uh, workshops or opportunities. So I visited some of the workshops before, and, uh, and it also it, it very much impressed me of how non-hierarchical uh, that work with undergrads is. And again, it's not something that everybody in American academia even does. I mean, we like to think that, but that's not true exactly. Very often it's, you know, a professor tells you what to do and you just do it. And when I saw how the students pick it up, that was also kind of a revelation. It's like nobody forces them to do it, but they want to do it. And then something that Jeremy Suri said also stuck with me. He said that this is not just an opportunity of education, but also making these human connections with Ukrainian students. And that these people, these young people who befriend each other eventually will change the world because these connections will be what drives the events. So, and that's another thing that I kind of kept thinking about and I'm still thinking about, that it's just a, the way we went to Ukraine, the way that our students really did befriend Ukrainian students and the focus groups and how they all, you know, just went out. And sometimes it was conversation about business and sometimes it was just a fun conversation. And these things should never be neglected in academia. And again, it's often just not paid attention to. It's like you're just supposed to pursue this intellectual knowledge, whatever it is, but it's never, you never really get the same insight as you would if you actually make friends. So I think that part of the project was just as instrumental as everything else and showed me that how how big human beings really are and how much we sometimes reduce them to just like a function, you know, like this is the person who's supposed to study or sit on a chair all day or I don't know.
I think maybe first we should talk about what we did in the spring semester before we went to Ukraine. Perfect. Yeah. So basically we taught a course, Oksana and I taught a three credit course, which we set up just for these students. And we gave them as many general readings as we could, but there was so much work on the project that we didn't want to totally overload them with those readings. But most of the readings were oriented towards one, learning about the context of Ukraine. So history and culture readings, some readings, general readings on politics, but also building a literature review around what we were going to study. That is youth, social media, politics, not just in Ukraine, but regionally or even globally. So we were actually building a research paper as we went. But the more exciting part of the project was throughout the course of the semester, we set up meetings and it was on Skype, which kind of cracks me up now because this was pre-pandemic, pre-Zoom or Zoom existed, but not that many people were using it. And we set up these meetings with students in six different cities in Ukraine. And we were able to find those students through faculty and other contacts in Ukraine. And it was quite a lot of work even just to get all those meetings set up. But we called this phase of the project democratic dialogues. So the idea was we wanted to ask them questions about their election process, about their own political engagement, about social media. But we also allowed them to ask us questions. And of course, Donald Trump was still the president. And so we had a lot to talk about on our end in terms of what was going on in American politics. was really fun. I guess that got us really hyped to actually go. And I think we needed that as much as it was a space to do some more practical work. So we were doing coding also during that class with Dr. Avramov of a Ukrainian activist, which that has been so helpful right now, especially to get news in the country. And we were doing budget work and kind of looking at hotels. So as much as it was logistical, it was also these calls. And the calls weren't always at 8 a.m., which is when our class was. They were sometimes at 7 a.m. And it was really exciting to see how ready we were to get up earlier the better to make these calls because we weren't we weren't just talking with subjects. We were talking, especially as an undergrad, these students were our age. They were going through similar life experiences. They were engaging with the same social media platforms that we were. They were going through an election that somewhat mimicked our own experiences and not understanding where the country was headed and feeling kind of destabilized in a similar way. And so we created this connection that I don't think you could have experienced over paper. And I think that's part of like when people ask me questions now about why are people staying Ukraine or like why are people so passionate about fighting those are answers that I can now give because we have those human connections that were garnered through qualitative methods it was garnered through these conversations which provided context that you can't you can't gain through a paper and even our paper which I'm like super proud of I don't think it fully encapsulated the emotions behind people's words and the true passion that these students had And so without these calls, we would never have been able to really gain that. But it made us so excited to go and the friendships we created. I mean, we saw the manifestation of those friendships when we were there. The first night, I think we were in Odessa. We stayed out on a beach until like 2 a.m. So (laughs) we were jet lagged and we were dedicated to being out with these people. We went to like a club and danced and then we went out to a beach and listened to people's like mixtapes. And like those were the friendships that we created because the project was never just about whittling them down to to an opinion or an idea. It was about 
And I think this was part of the iteration of the, our original proposal was that there was a long-term influence. It was going to be like an institutional partnership between us and these universities abroad, but also that at the end of the day, as much as we could say we know people in Ukraine, they could say they know people in Texas. And that's why there's like such an obligation, I feel such an obligation right now to stay in contact with people. Um, and that couldn't have been gained any other way. Like these were our friends at the end of the day. And um, it I, like would not have turned back. It was such an, ex that spring course really set us up for a great time while we were there and helped us ask the right questions. Like we wouldn't have known to ask the questions that we did while we were in the country without that pre-work. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, I think there's two things that stand out. One is there was a huge intergenerational uh, element to this where like I'm only like I think like four or five years uh, older than um, Lauren and, and a lot of the people we were talking to. But still, even there, because of social media, their interaction with politics, their interaction with culture, their interaction with these things was so different just because of the, the social media that they use. And that was one of the things that immediately hit me. I kind of immediately thought that I would be talking with participants who were essentially of kind of the, the same, what's even the word, techno-cultural uh, ontology or something. But that actually turned out not the case where, you know, it's all about Instagram and, and TikTok. And, and so they, and, and Zelensky had very good visors that was tying him into that intergener intergenerational aspect. And so that was immediately informative. And then it was also immediately informative when we realized that, that this is a two-way street, right? We're learning so much about them for our project, but then I'm realizing that so much of what's going on in Ukraine is relevant to the United States and our experience here and it is predictive of the way that a lot of communication and political communication is is going to, to trend in the future. And so that that was ex extremely helpful, uh, I think, for us to put us in the correct mindset even before we got to meet these people in person. And then the other interesting aspect was following the, the influencers, because I still, I mean, uh, I still follow those influencers now, and they're the most important kind of cultural window that I have into you know, what very truly influential people are thinking about uh, events right now. And so it's, 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 it was incredibly useful, you know, kind of retrospectively to see like, wow, I've seen how this issue, because I started following these people years ago, how kind of the thinking and the fears have, have developed over time and things like that. Well, for me, it was, um, you know, the the undergrad students and some of our graduate students from UT were, of course, a revelation. But also I realized that, you know, my idea of what Ukraine is, is based on, you know, conversations with people of my generation and my friends. And when I saw these young people, I was also stunned because, um, I mean, they might not have been voting for who I would be voting for, but they did have the zeal and passion. And it was kind of what Matt is saying, that it's a kind of a different configuration sometimes. A lot of these young students would say, oh, we are not political. We are not, we're not political because they would associate it with actually being a politician. But in America, you know, political means that you actually take things close to heart, that you go to, I don't know, rallies, that you, that you know the names of the candidates who are running, you know, for, for, for the office. And they knew all that and way more. And yet they were saying, we're not political people. We're just, we, we don't do politics. Uh, so that was kind of amazing and that they actually were super patriotic you know it wasn't like you know during the Soviet Union or right before, right after Soviet Union fell apart where people would opt for some candidates that would be what we'd call pro-Russian and they actually would be pro-Soviet at that point 
But this was, you know, suddenly we, we would witness how this new landscape of Ukrainian politics is being born in the minds of Ukrainian people, not just in the physical space, but actually in that other space. And now we again, we see that come to some fruition also. Despite the fact that, you know, uh, Lauren said we, that some people didn't know who Zelensky was, and, and now suddenly the whole world knows who Zelensky is. <laughs> and uh, even though, again, many people would be against him and saying, oh, he's a comedian, he cannot lead the country, and all that. And then other people would say, no, no, he's the leader of a new generation and of a completely new quality. And all of that would be through the prism of social media. And again, I would think, oh, that's just, I would have disbelief about it. But then I would see that the epochs really did change. And there's something to it. There's something to all these messages that we've heard back then. I mean, essentially, in the course of that semester, we watched the elections through its different, you know, there was a primary and then there was the final election or they call it tours. There was two tours. And essentially Zelensky won by a landslide, which surprised a lot of people. But actually he won precisely because of his effective use of social media with young people and also his appeal to other generations, as, as Matt said, both through the youth, using them as kind of a medium, but also because he was a star on television and other media. But I think also because he not only offered hope to a younger generation as a young person, but he also appealed, and I think this is really important right now and looking at what's happening in Ukraine right now, he appealed to Russian speakers. He appealed to this idea of unity for Ukraine of Russians and Ukrainians. We are all here for Ukraine. So it's kind of incredible now to watch him bring Ukrainians together in that way, you know, as a Russian speaker himself and as a Russian Jew, kind of more of a figure of representative of Ukrainian diversity, yeah. I suppose you could say. Totally agree with that. And I think that question has been so fascinating thinking about now in the context of this war, because the question that's really been interesting to me is thinking about what if the Zelensky's opponent, the previous president, Petro Poroshenko, had been president during this war? And I, I don't want to go off too on a, much on a tangent on this, but I, I, I part of me is concerned that Ukraine would be in a worse position right now if that was the case. And that's a big change for me because I go. Everybody on the project knows that I was very anti-Zelensky kind of during during it and for a lot of this time. But now in this context, I've come. I've come. I think I think I've almost done a, a 180. Uh, or I, I I believe that. Because of, of these things that Mary just mentioned, because he he had had this more this kind of broader tent push, and I think he has a lot of the the trust of the, the Russian speaking population in the East, who, by the way, are the people bearing the brunt of what's going on right now. Right, they know him; they have had constant cultural contact with him. That he he's 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 seen as he, he has a lot of trust, and that's borne out obviously in what's what's happening. And so I just think that's a really interesting dynamic to all this. But I should also add that that. It's not an old thing for Ukrainian politics. The the classic approach of Ukrainian politics is you campaign towards the towards the east, towards the Russian speaker, which is what where a lot of the the population is. And then you, after you win election, you move your 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 support base moves to the west of the country. And so it's a, a tactic that's been that's been done by previous President Lenin Kuchma and other Ukrainian leaders uh, in, in the past. So. So I think as we're thinking about the timeline of the project, we've had the planning, we've had our spring semester prep. Any of you have any particular kind of memories or recall from that that period of time of being on the ground in this place? 
it was exhausting. We booked it, like, cause we, we did have a set budget. I think, I don't want to sell it too short cause the lure of the President's Award was kind of a blank check. And we took advantage of that in our first articulation of the project. And so the day after, and I don't, I want to kind of circle back to this. When we were told no, that we didn't get it, Mary sent us an email and said, no, we're, we're doing this. We're still rallying this. We're getting everybody's money because we had each received a thousand dollars. We're rallying that. We're moving around funds. Y'all are applying for scholarships and we are going. And so we did have, we had some money, but we did have to really truncate our time in the country. And so we did have a, and I think Mary can probably talk to her more, but we did have somebody coordinating in the country, which we could not have done this without her. We did have institutional connections, which we had leveraged. And then the students really stepped up and the students were pivotal and kind of organizing some of the more like taking us on tours, been reliving all of my photos of like the tours of our group in Lviv, taking us on tours like Odessa the first night, like would not have done that without them. We had interviews, um, a mix between interviews, focus groups, handing out surveys, doing cultural events. And it was jam packed um, because we were only there for not a lot of time. I think it was about a month. Yeah, somewhere Um, in there. Yeah. (laughs) So we kind of really jam-packed it because we went to four cities. We did four cities in that time to interview some of the students. We had six that we had had focus groups with virtually, and we narrowed that down to four because places like Kharkiv were, that was a no, and then we couldn't get, I think the other group was in Ujgorod, and we just couldn't get out there. And so it was, it was busy. It was busy. It was exhausting. I think Oksana can probably talk to it because we leveraged her, her translation skills all the time and made her walk with us everywhere (laughs) and so it was it was a lot and so that's kind of what it was like inside the country i do think the fact that we went over was so exciting even before we left we were you know telling all these groups we were meeting with we're coming we're coming to see you and i don't know if at first they were probably going really (laughs) Um, but sure enough we're like here's the dates we're gonna be there For me, I remember just kind of setting up our itinerary. It's crazy. We set up a Slack workspace. We also had a huge Google Drive folder. We, those still exist. They're like an archive of our efforts. And it's crazy to look in there and see because the students literally helped do all the paperwork that was required because it was a restricted region. We together chose hotels and hostels and places to stay and made reservations. So it was really a group effort from start to end. But one of the things we did, and this was, you know, I wanted to back up, Lauren, when you said I emailed everyone, we're doing it. It was because Matt Maldonado, who's not here today in this group, but who was one of the key team members, came to me and said, Dr. Neuberger, we got to do this. Come on, we got to do this. And I was like, okay, we can do it. All right, we're going to do it. But so he really wanted to go to a soccer game in Lviv. So we actually organized the trip around being in Lviv for the soccer game of Ukraine versus Serbia. But um, we ordered the tickets online, remember? And we had to pick them up at a random post office and we were afraid they were fake actually. And then when we went to the gates to get in, we were totally nervous, but then the gate thing stopped working and they were just like letting people through, (laughs) you know, without having to buzz the tickets. So it was fine. And that was kind of, for me, one of the highlights was going to that soccer game with you guys. And just looking at those pictures of us smiling, holding Ukrainian flags, you know, drinking a beer, looking out at the crowd. And it just makes me so sad now to see that. 
but really meeting with all those people in person. And for me, it was the professors that I connected with more and spent time with. And I'm still in contact with at least two of them, Petro, if you guys remember in Lviv, and Ihor from Ivano Prakipsk, which that town has already been recently bombed. Their airport has, we were just talking about it earlier, the airport has been bombed out. So there's basically no airport there anymore. It was an airport that we all flew into. So being in touch with those people, still following what they're doing, asking what we can do, it just kind of lends a personal note to understanding what's going on right now. But I have to say the trip was amazing in all respects. But what about for you, Oksana? You were probably the most taxed by all the work on the trip. The trip. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> Yes, because you arrived in uh, in uh, Ivano Frankivsk because you had other engagements. You were at a conference in in Serbia or Croatia. I don't remember. Uh, right, and I arrived in Odessa, and I actually been to last time. Well, it was a way of, for me to well to connect with our students to learn how to do this whole experiential learning, having never been in in the midst of it before. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Abby, another uh, key member of the group, and how we talked about education and what works and what doesn't. And I said, well, I wish this is how American academia worked all the way, but I guess it's not possible all the way yet. And But it also was a way, strangely, for me to learn more about my own country. Like last time I was in Odessa, I was like 14. And, you know, I had very distant memories of it. And suddenly when I came there and I really loved the city, I was like, why didn't I come here more? You know, it's like Ukrainians from the West oftentimes just stay in the West, not for any particular reason, just because it's your home. So you just stay there. Right. And uh, suddenly I was struck by how it changed and how, I mean, people speak Russian, but I mean, it was not an unpatriotic city at all. It was, it was very interesting. And the students we met there were quite advanced politically and personally. And we had some great excursions there, went to the catacombs and saw the underground world of Odessa and all that. And so it was, it was very rewarding. And then, you know, the, the other cities like Ivano-Frankivsk and Lviv and Kiev, of course, they're all each overwhelming in their own way. And actually, Ivano-Frankivsk, which is home to one of Ukraine's uh, most important literary movements that started in the 1990s and that gave rise to such prominent writers as Yuri Andruhovich, who people might, well, Matt has heard of because he has, he has had to read some. But uh, you see that I've never actually been there as well. I've been to some other ones in the area, but not to that particular one. And so when I came there, I suddenly understood where this semi-magical realism comes from, because you, you don't even have to do anything. You just have to walk there. You know, we were living in this very large hotel with very sort of big furniture. And then suddenly we come for breakfast and it's kind of like this. It looks like, a, you know, something from a fairy tale. It's literally everything you ever wanted and didn't know about food and didn't know that such food existed. So I don't even know how that happened there in the middle of that city. So, so yeah, it was, it was very involved, but also very rewarding. And I mean, I only wish I participated in all the 100% activities because, you know, sometimes it was not possible. Well, and Oksana was there for me when we needed to. Sometimes the dignitaries wanted us to come so they could present us gifts. I mean, just the faculty. So Oksana and I did some of that. And actually, I think in Ivano Frankivsk, more than anywhere else, they really rolled out the red carpet for us. They took us hiking in the Carpathian Mountains. You know, we had a dinner. They did all kinds of things for us. So in the end, 
once we wrote our article, we decided to submit it to them and it was actually published in their journal, which was, I think, a nice way of giving back. Instead of, you know, academics often take their research, they do it and they put it in some Western journal and there's no kind of closing of the loop or sharing of that work with local journals and institutions. And, and maybe to that end, what was it like seeing the U.S. through folks over there's perspective? I imagine you had conversations about our own government and complexities while you were over there. At first, it was through Zelensky, I think, that this was kind of how I started to feel this, because I uh, it, was, it was very clear to me early on when we started hearing what the students were saying about Zelensky, that this was a, a very Trumpian figure coming out of show business. And the parallels were obvious. And I said, well, look, if, if a young person Zelensky's age can, you know, be so popular in, in Ukraine, you know, why I could very easily see a similar figure coming on the stage of the of the American political scene. Right. I mean, you know, why does a conditional Donald Trump have to be in his 70s when you could have somebody the minimum age for a president, for example, or, you know, even even um, the, the other politicians that came to mind are, are the very young members of Congress. Like, for example, the squad or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so we, we immediately started seeing these parallels with kind of youth and, 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 new, and new generation. And so that was all that was very felt. And then the other way that I really felt it was when you also saw the campaign strategies being used by Zelensky. And I said, this stuff is genius. How many how many years or months will it take for this stuff to come to the United States? One of the, the things that the Zelensky campaign did is that I know that in the United States, there's very regimented rules about campaign mes- messaging and legal stuff. And there's also a big kind of campaigns don't like it when unofficial sources work on behalf of the campaign, right? Because that's a big scandal, right? You you don't want some somebody saying that they're working on, on your behalf, but they're actually not, right? But Zelensky, their kind of approach was just whatever, you know, we're just going to post a bunch of tasks that need to be done. Like in this city, go go pass out these flyers and go put this on this on these bus stations and you'd, and you'd, and, and it was just kind of throwing these tasks around and then people, people would do it. I'm not necessarily sure that that's legal in the United States, or it's not something you could do from the campaign officially, but I, I just thought it was an incredible kind of crowdsourcing of campaign activities that was really fascinating. And then how they would do this all on social media and specifically places like Telegram, Instagram, and it, and it was, and it was working. So I, I think those are those are the ways that I kind of started to think about the kind of the cross country uh, aspect of it. I think maybe because I'm not generationally removed like Matt is from <laughs> the youngins like I am, but I think I saw a whole lot of myself in that. And I think Maya saw that as well, because we have been working on youth political engagement in the United States and the, the methods in which we utilize kind of getting rallying people to the polls or rallying people in non-traditional ways about particular issues. And so I think I saw the value in that so much more after seeing that abroad, because I think in some ways we don't always think we have that much of an impact in the United States. And we saw what could be in Ukraine. We saw if it could be actualized. And I think Zelensky is a great example of this, like the true power that my generation could hold because of the tools that we have. And I think that was really empowering. I mean, there were some, they didn't hold back in terms of questions to us either. I mean, it it started with Trump. And I think the more, there are some where I was like, definitely humbled in terms of recognizing the, the faults of my own country in terms of watching a country who's fighting for democracy. 
I think to a degree, my generation can somewhat be removed from an actual goal of like democracy or even identifying as trying to find a like aiming towards fighting for that democracy. I think we are often we're removed from that struggle. Um, and that's a privilege that we have. And so that was something I had to reconcile with. But I think going back to the the hiking in Ivana Frankivsk, my memory of that started on the bus. That bus was a that was a long bus ride. And they asked us some really intense questions. I mean, we had to we were seen as kind of these delegates of American culture. And we had to answer about like questions about racism and like deep ingrained societal issues that I don't think any of us were really prepared to defend or answer or explain. And it's really hard to explain the intricacies of systemic racism to people who who aren't forced to reconcile with that and how that impacts our ability to advocate. And I think that's also kind of, I mean, I think it shows the success of our project. We wanted this to be a long-term dialogue, not just dialogue within the country, but just to echo that, what Mary said at the very start of this, it was a, to be an, a dialogue between them and us. I mean, it was the most challenging conversation I think I had with people in country, but it was, I think it really showed that this was going to be a long-term connection between us and that we felt comfortable enough to ask those difficult questions. I don't think any of us came out of that bus ride being particularly happy with one another. But I think we had enough respect where I'm still following all of them on Instagram. And we, we've had conversations actively over the last like three, has it been three years? I don't know, three years, two years, kind of along those same lines. They still feel comfortable enough to come to me as I feel comfortable enough to go to them to ask questions. But yeah, you, we were humbled really quickly. So knowing that obviously we have this horrific event happening right now, how, how has the experience on that project kind of invited you to make sense of what's happening right now in particular ways? How is that shaping the ways you're sort of viewing what's information is coming out, maybe your own personal activism in what's happening? I, I, have, I have a lot to say uh, on this topic. I 100% believe that the number one reason why this invasion of Ukraine is happening is because of the dynamics that we explored in this research and this project. So, for example, when Putin gave his speech kind of the, the morning announcing this war, he spent time specifically talking about the the organizations that were brainwashing the Ukrainian people and spent time talking about you know, the activities of, of Western governments and Western organizations in Ukraine and the long-term threat that that allegedly posed to Russia. And the idea is that Putin and his his regime were so scared of the ideas and the, the values of this upcoming generation in Ukraine that we had so much contact with. They're, you know, like I remember the conversations we had with people in Odessa where they would say, you know, I, I'm Russian, I only speak Russian. And then, you know, it was it wasn't until 2014 that I really felt like Ukrainian, but then kind of 2014 put everything in its place. I remember something some somebody saying that to me there. And, you know, then you start to then you start to realize that it was Ukraine becoming this flourishing normal is often the word that they like to use is they, they want to be a normal European democracy. But, you know, they want to be a member of the EU and NATO, which, again, is are those, 
entrance in those two organizations is a is one of the big demands that the Ukrainians don't you know don't want to give up on. And so you start you start to realize that essentially it's that long term political dynamic created by this new generation of young Ukrainians that Putin believed was so threatening to his governance model in Russia that this is why he had to do this. And so that's why I think the the foresight of our our research, our our project was so incredible because it was essentially getting to the the sources and really exploring this this whole issue before it became clear precisely what the results of that would be. This this war against Ukraine was not about NATO. It was was about that. It was about Ukrainian democracy being so threatening to, to Putin. off of things that we were watching happen in our project that we are now discrediting is like the the anti-Semitism. And I think it was a conversation by Oksana and Kirill Avramov. I, re- I can v- envision them in the doorway talking to us about how ingrained that is and the importance that Zelensky played in being a, um, a Jewish man running for president. And then looking at the, the, the memes that we are looking at, looking at the news coverage and kind of starting to uncover and discredit those narratives as being Russian oriented and to see those like play a part in like the origins of the, or in the narratives at the beginning to try to legitimize um, this war has been particularly something that I've really like grasped onto. And then I think in terms of other things that I've like taken away from the project is the importance of social media. So the students like sharing information or asking me to share information on Instagram to share with my community here or to funding resources. And I think we started our like literature review looking at Maidan and how that started with, with social media. And so it's almost eerily similar to kind of see those same networks really utilized today and kind of see the manifestation of some of the stuff we talked about in our our paper. In some ways, there's no point in teaching. There's no point in learning. There's no point in any of this unless it's about real people, unless it's about the human condition. And this project just made it real. It made it real during it, and it's made it real after it. We know who these people are. We care who these people are. But we also care about democracy, about something much bigger, and that's precisely what we were studying. Yeah, well, and for me, it was, like I said before, the kind of learning about my own country and kind of letting go of some of my own patterns. You know, I one of the big topics that I work with, both in fiction and in academic life, is what is a Soviet person? What does make a so- person Soviet? And you know, the fact that Soviet Union ended doesn't mean that a Soviet person came to an end also. And it's partly this adherence to very few patterns and a very rigid patterns. You know, so I remember I was thinking, Zelensky is this pro-Russian person. And it was a revelation that when I met these young people, they're like, they, they believe in him as a pro-Ukrainian person. And then I realized that I am thinking with patterns that I inherited from my own Soviet past. So it just doesn't work like that anymore. And uh, it also showed me the importance uh, of uh, communicating with with uh, people, right? It's like Mary said, there's no way to actually know things before you know a human being. And, you know, the, the field humanities, and I love it dearly, of course, and all that, but, you know, people think that humanities has something to do with human, but it's actually a study of texts. So uh, it's a little bit of a, you know, different focus. Uh, so even just the research methods we used and uh, kind of looking at things narrowly in like focus groups or interviews, but also having statistical analysis and all that. And I mean, all of that mattered. 
accounting for uh, you know viewpoints that these young people had and uh, following the influences even for even, even like Matt said that he still follows them and I'm and I do too and I mean these they're amazing people and it's, uh, again it gives me a better picture of what's going on and and I want to return to this issue of democracy that we brought up here. And again, I am um, not American, so the word democracy, the word democracy, to me is, you know, something that came from the outside eventually, because Soviet Union could have called himself itself anything, but it was not a democracy. So, and then it was just an overused word for a while. That's what we thought, you know, as this post-Soviet space. It's like, how does that even work? Does it even work? Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe people just want to go back. I mean, I don't know. And the seeing the dialogues, witnessing the dialogues of our students with Ukrainian students helped me kind of see that crystallize, you know, the, because the fact that you... You're formally an adult doesn't mean that you necessarily understand what those new words mean that were never there for you when you were yourself, you know, growing up. So it's like a self-examination of sorts. So, and uh, yes, and I am very happy that the topic that we chose was specifically election and specifically, uh, you know, the, the issue of the election of Volodymyr Zelensky, which again, at that time, uh, I was very much opposed to him as a leader. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been uh, quite a story that has been unfolding in front of our eyes. And I agree with Matt that uh, we understood quite a bit about it now that we can see that perhaps he's the leader that was capable to unite Ukraine in this way. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 